You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster. On today's show, what now for the EU as it faces a future without Britain? And as Brexit negotiations take a small step forward, we'll ask where this leaves the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Finland accuses Russia of jamming its GPS signal during NATO's Scandinavian war games. Mixed reactions in Italy after only a handful of people show up for a summit to bring peace to Libya. We ask, what's the key to staging a successful summit? My guests Sebastian Borger and Stephen Diel will be discussing these and the day's other top story. Farewell to a genius. We pay tribute to Stan Lee, co-creator of the comic book heroes Spider-Man, The Incredible Hulk and X-Men, who's died at the age of 95. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guest today are Sebastian Borger, who's the London correspondent for the Tagesspiegel, and the Russian affairs analyst Stephen Diel. Gentlemen, welcome both to the programme. Now, Angela Merkel is worried, although she's hiding it fairly well. The German Chancellor has spent several months contemplating her political future, which is hardly rosy at the moment. Rocked by her party's defeats in regional elections and with her coalition partner resigning the leadership of his party, Europe's de facto leader said she wants to stand down as Chancellor in 2021, although her rivals may have other ideas. Naturally, that was sidestepped during a speech to the EU Parliament where she described Brexit as a deep wound and extolled Europe as a voice for good in the world. With the news that British and EU negotiators have now agreed a final draft text of a Brexit deal, can Mrs Merkel make good on her optimism to save the European project? We'll never let it be said that we don't answer the big questions here on the Tory House. But, um, Sebastian, look, the, the draft text, this is only really broken in the last few moments, but Mrs May herself, she's not quite out of the woods. She's got to show this to her cabinet, so there could still be some rejection. She's very much in the woods, I would have thought. Um, uh, and in the woods, she is now seeing her cabinet ministers one by one to make sure that they don't conspire against her. And then, of course, there'll be a cabinet meeting tomorrow. Um, I think it's good news um, to f- finally for, for the two sides to have agreed um, uh, because, you know, the alternative would have been uh, too bitter to contemplate, really, the chaos Brexit, which, uh, which uh, al- Brexit ultras have uh, raved about um, and which would bring... Uh, food shortages and and um, lack of medication to these aisles within about a week um so so, so well, there is the argument that's project fear but let's not go down no it's that not road. no no sorry no 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 sorry that's no, no, a ter- I'm no. Not, I'm not, I'm not it's not project I'm not, fear I'm not, I'm not expressing that as my it's, point it's of view enti- I hasten to say well no no but even then you know this project fear thing is totally uh, in the past uh, this is absolutely what would happen if you if you crash out of a club without having any agreement of how to how to uh, have your trade relations okay. in the future can I just can anyway. I just yeah I mean I, I do take your point on that I have, to, I have to say though that that is that is the typical argument if you like, which is put forward by by some very ardent Brexiteers. But look, let's move over to you, Stephen. Given what has happened, does that now mean that at least we have avoided the prospect of 
crashing out of Europe without having a deal. The disorderly Brexit scenario has now been avoided. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, I I was... uh, I've become terribly sceptical about the whole thing. I I I don't think we should be leaving in the first place, and that is my opinion. Um, But um, this idea that uh, Theresa May is calling in her members of her cabinet one by one to go go through this 400-page document before discussing it with the cabinet at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, um, it all sounds... Uh, rather like papering over the cracks. Um, if, if you think back only a couple of days, we've had Boris Johnson, uh, the, how should we say, somewhat controversial mm. former foreign minister, um, calling for a mutiny. I mean, that's really serious language, calling for a mutiny in the cabinet. Um, so whatever is in this 400-page document, and they're not going to get through it all in a, in a little chat with um, Theresa May this afternoon, this evening, um, you know, I still see, you know, a kind of et tu Boris or something, you know, Theresa could still be stabbed in the back uh, by those who, who don't like it. Mm. So it's, it, without wishing to sound totally sceptical, I mean, it's it's better news than perhaps mm. we thought earlier in the day. But even so, I'll, um, I wouldn't give it three cheers right, yet. So, so, so a useful step, but don't bring out the champagne yet. But look, in terms of the broader European picture, Sebastian, I mean, where does this leave Mrs Merkel's vision for an EU without Britain and ultimately without her because she has been seen as this very steadying, stable force who perhaps has been losing her grip a little bit. I don't, uh, sorry, I, I've, I've no idea what vision you're talking about. Well, her vision of Europe, of, of Europe going there forward. There is no Merkel vision. There is no Merkel vision. The, the whole point of Angela Merkel has always been that she hasn't got visions. And in fact, one of our f- former chancellors, Helmut Schmidt, used to say, if you have visions, go to the doctor. Um, <laughs> and it, what, what, we are, what, we are, what we are keeping up in Germany is uh, the national interest, the vital national interest in keeping the European Union going. And, uh, and we... we we regret greatly, greatly, that Britain is leaving us. But uh, but um, but there's clearly that that's if that's the free will of the British people, so be it. Um, and and we've got to keep the show on the road. And and mm-hmm. I think she's done this afternoon. We see with a speech about the European Army. She's for the first time, in fact, uh, brought forward an idea. I think it's slightly bonkers to be honest but at least there's there's uh, there's something positive after years and years where the european union was all about crisis management uh, crisis management with the with the um, uh, situation in greece then crisis management with spain and ireland and all of that uh, the euro in in trouble um now we 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 i think there is a, a t- to some extent a little bit of a mood in in brussels and in, on the continent which says well very, very sad to see the Brits go, but now let's get on with it. And, and that's an interesting point, isn't it, Stephen? Because, you know, as, 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 as uh, Sebastian said, there was a lot of crisis management lurching from one disaster to another and simply holding it all together and that perhaps maybe Angela Merkel should have used her position in a slightly more constructive way. And yes, she's now talking about these things, but it's only because if you think about it, Brexit has forced the issue. Uh, yes, although I, I must admit, I, I think I'm somewhat disagreeing with Sebastian, somewhat cautiously, given that he is German and, and I'm not. But um, I've always had a great uh, admiration, actually, for Angela Merkel, particularly in the European sense. I th- um, I've, I've long thought that, uh, again, rather ironically, she's the only European leader with balls. Um, uh, she's she's st- stood up to you know she stood up to Putin um, in in a way that other European leaders and indeed world leaders haven't. Um, she's she she she's put forward um, a, a lot of 
a lot of strength, I think. Um, and yes, she cares a lot about Europe. And uh, she made it clear that, you know, if the Brits are going to go, we don't want them to go, but, you know, we'll get on with it. Um, and I think that, um, as I say, I, I've, I've admired her stance on, on a number of issues. Okay. I, I, you know, don't don't get me wrong. I I think she's she's been a very good person in charge, and that's the way. It just the 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 times played. Uh, you, you know, that's the cards she had. She was given, and she played them well. No doubt about it. Mm. I feel a bit like actually I, when I look at her now, and I, I, it's um, as an Arsenal fan, I sort of, she's a bit like Arsene Wenger. You know, who, um, <laughs> um, maybe her time has come to go. You know, he stayed on at least a year too long, yes. and possibly mm. a bit longer. But um, you know, maybe maybe it is time. To for her to step down when she's still doing reasonably well. Mm, but I, I guess the question has to be, of course, that you know she wants to leave in in twenty twenty one. There's a lot happening Won't within happen. that. You, you don't think that's going to happen? No. When no. do you think she'll get? Well, she'll be forced if, out rather than I'm, I, 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 unfortunately, I have uh, said many a uh, uh, sentence into this microphone, which has proved entirely wrong uh, <laughs> very uh, shortly afterwards. But I, I, I hereby declare that um, I can't see her uh, carrying on beyond um, New Year's Eve 2019. In other words, we'll have a new Chancellor on the 1st of January 2020, at latest. Mm. Who do you think is likely to succeed her? Who would you put your money on? At the moment, um, it's it's uh, it's a very open race, but I think the, the um, former Premier of Saarland, Annegret Kramp Karrenbauer, or I'm not even as we call to as we that. call her in Berlin, AKK. That's that's much easier on the much tongue. Much easier, that's right. <laughs> but I mean, when you when you look at the the way that uh, the, the Europe, the European project, call it what you will, has existed in the Merkel years, there's been a very very close relationship between France and Germany, and there is the claim in some quarters that it's really been to the exclusion of others. So is that criticism justified? And do you feel that perhaps um, those relationships will be reappraised, made tighter? Because obviously, if the European project is to survive, Stephen, you can't afford to have anybody else leave. And there's plenty of Euroscepticism around. There is plenty of Euroscepticism. But I, for one, think that actually the relationship and the what appears to be the strong bond, not only between France and Germany, but personally between uh, Merkel and Macron, uh, now is good for Europe. Um, uh, I think you know we saw at the weekend when we had the remembrance service, and and they were talking about you know the importance of Europe being united. And I think you know when the two major continental powers, with all due respect to every other country on continental Europe, I mean they are the two major continental powers, and if they are showing a united front, then that is something for the other countries to unite behind. And I I personally think it's it's a good thing. It's it's a sign of strength. I see. Mm. Well, strong enough to to defeat the populism because it's it's quite strong in, in some countries and there is this fear that if, if it isn't confronted head on that it it could change the alignments. Well, look, I mean, we're, we're having a, a European Parliament election coming up next spring. Um, if, we, if we're if we unlucky, we'll have uh, populists uh, as the main, biggest uh, faction in, in, in the Parliament, and, and that'll be very, very awkward. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I, I think, yeah, if, if, if France and Germany have a project, have, a, have an idea of where they want to, to, the club to go, and, and bring in, I think that was always the, the, the secret of, of German European politics, to, to, to be very close, to stay very close to France, but to always listen to the smaller neighbours as well. Mm. We, we are the, the country with the most 
neighbours, ten uh, bordering us, um, and particularly Poland and particularly uh, the Netherlands are vital players in in in, in this in this chess game of 27. Um, so so I I I think. Um, you, you've got to you've got to show people what the European can do, and you also have to tell them what it can't do and what it shouldn't do. And I think that we, we're we're getting this is maybe a, a positive outcome of of Brexit, that that the, those voices who are European in at, in their hearts, but are also skeptical in the proper sense of the word not the not this stupid english sense where where euro <laughs> no where people are called euroskeptics who are europhobes who are hostile mm. who are enemies of the european union so you can you can enjoy Skeptic europe but you can have criticisms rote the the, the 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 dutch premier for example is, is is someone who i have in mind when i think of of that someone who who knows exactly uh, that the european union is good for 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 the continent but there are some bits which have to be mm. Pruned, no yeah. doubt about. So, so basically, you, you you can be, you can enjoy the European project and its aspirations, but you you can have criticisms of the workings of that mechanism, and and that and that's Certainly. the point, isn't it? Because now that we now that Britain is appears to be poised to leave, unless something happens to derail that, this is also the chance for Europe to reform itself. Perhaps uh, that process can start under Angela Merkel, but then it has to be maintained by her successor, whoever that may be. Uh, yes, and I think I think the great tragedy for the UK is that it took perhaps a move like Brexit for Europe to understand that um, the, the you know the whole European project has has gone a little sour in recent years, and many many people, including many pro-European Brits, felt you know that it needs shaking up, it needs reforming. Um, and it's a shame that that wasn't done while Britain was still a member so that Britain could have continued to be a member, I think. OK, then. So, look, that's uh, one type of subject which will, will lay to rest for the moment. It will obviously have some legs of its own. It's going to continue for some time. But I want to stay in Europe and uh, this time put the spotlight on Russia because Russia has found itself in the dock after Finland accused it of deliberately jamming its GPS signal during NATO war games in Scandinavia. Prime Minister Juha Sipila said that parts of the Finnish areas of Lapland and northern areas of Norway close to the Russian border were affected during the incident. Now, so far, Moscow hasn't responded to the accusations, but NATO commanders do concede that Russia's cyber capabilities are impressive. So, Stephen, you could argue that perhaps Finland was being provocative, maybe unintentionally, by holding these war games so close to the border with Russia, there was bound to be some sort of a response, although perhaps we hadn't expected it to be like this. I think that uh, that, that the idea that um, NATO was being provocative or Finland was being provocative, the West was being provocative at holding these uh, exercises close to Russia is simply Russian disinformation. Earlier this year, Russia had a huge exercise, much, much bigger than this one, called Zappa 2018, the West 2018, which they hold every couple of years. Um, and there, there were far more troops um, and right on the borders of the Baltic states, uh, so uh, who are members of NATO, of course. Uh, so um, and then, and then after that, since then, they've had uh, uh, exercises with three hundred thousand troops and some Chinese involved as well in in Siberia. So the idea of holding big exercises is uh, is, is not um, just common to NATO, and in fact, 
so the NATO exercises are smaller. Um, that that region, the whole Baltic region and Scandinavian region, of course, is uh, a potential flashpoint. Um, and I think there's no doubt in my mind that um, the Russians have messed around with the GPS. Um, the worrying thing is that uh, you know it's it's affected some civilian mm. aircraft as well. And why this fits a pattern is because Russia does these things. Russia switches off the transponders on its aircraft and flies them into NATO airspace or very, very close to NATO airspace, causing NATO jets to, to fly up to intercept them. Um, and because these, it knows isn't, there's not really going to be much of a response beyond words and threats of sanctions. That's right. I mean, it's all part of this very sad game that Russia plays where it, it sees the West as an enemy when the West is not actually an enemy mm. and the West doesn't want to be the enemy of Russia. They actually wants to cooperate. And I, I think, Sebastian, just picking up on something that Stephen said, the thing which I found really disturbing about this story was the fact that it, that uh, this jamming did impact on civilian aircraft and of course it, it brings to mind this possibility, God forbid, of um, something happening, a plane crash and of course the diplomatic fallout arising from a tragic loss of human life. Mm. Well, I, I, I guess, I mean, Stephen knows uh, about those things much more but my, my, my gut feeling is that we have been too weak towards Russia and, and um, um, we, we will have to be uh, tougher also in, in cyberspace, you know. We will have to make clear and then follow through on it uh, that if they uh, mess about with uh, GPS signals in, in, in what, is, what, what you could loosely term the Western Hemisphere. Although, I mean, Finland isn't actually a NATO member. That's mm. what puzzled me slightly. But they were part of the exercise. Anyway, um, if, they, if they mess about uh, with people, then, then we will have to mess back sooner mm. or later. I mean, two, two things there which I'd like your response to, Stephen. This idea that perhaps we have been too soft with our responses to Russia and maybe it's time to, to toughen up. But, it, it's, but also the fact that Finland, not a member of NATO, but involved in these exercises nonetheless. So the Russians saying, look, you know, if you aspire to belong to, to NATO, then forget it. And this is a reminder. Uh, yes, and they, they do that. And, and uh, they with Sweden as well. Um, uh, I mean, quite threatening language they've used in the past. Um, we 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 are too soft, but simply because you know we are not a dictatorial state or a system um, as as Russia is. Um, it's very difficult in this whole game of disinformation to, um, to 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 know exactly how to play it because if you if you play them at their own game and if you there's no point in sending back lies into Russia what we need to be doing is is trying to make it clear to the Russian people actually you know the West is not your enemy and um, sadly. Uh, many, many Russians um, and the vast majority of Russians, let's make it clear, never meet a foreigner. Um, you know, there's been a lot more uh, contact since the uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union because and people go to Mo go to Moscow or Muscovites and, and some, uh, people from St. Petersburg come to the West. But they are a tiny minority of the Russian population and the vast majority of Russians still don't uh, meet Westerners and they are kept in this information bubble all media effectively in Russia is controlled from the Kremlin. Um, and and yet the internet was supposed to bypass that, these independent channels. They were, it can be misused, obviously. We, we know that. It, it can be misused and also um, still in remote parts of Russia, a lot of people still don't have access to uh, to the internet. Um, uh, and in any case, they're, they're not looking, you know, they, they, they simply turn on their television set. Younger people will use Twitter and social media. Um, but it's still, it's, it's a minority that really get mm. to see the other side. And 
that I, I think it's so important actually we, we we make that contact with with Russian people and make it clear to them that the West is not your enemy the right. West does not want to be which fighting is very Russia. difficult because certainly the British I think the British was it the British school or one of these British institutions which was um, which is based in Moscow aiming to 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 give that cultural message I think that was that was the British, hit the British Council the yeah, British, British Council, Council that's right it was hit it was shut it was hit it the last the last sanction game so how 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 can you respond um, show show a, a tough fist without playing the Russian game of, of disinformation. Yes, we can talk about sanctions, etc., oh. but it needs to go beyond that, doesn't I, it? I, no, I mean, in, disinformation is, the wrong, is, is, I think, the wrong path. But militarily, we, we, aren't, we aren't prepared militarily. And, and militarily these days means not just having nice boats and, and, and nuclear weapons, which are, which, which are helpful to absolutely nobody, but, but to, be, to have a, a, a proper, serious cyber capability. Mm. And, to, and, and, and that doesn't mean pumping out disinformation, but, but if, you, if you jam um, the, 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 uh, the signals of the westernmost Russian divisions, then, you know, you send a clear message that what you can do, we can do at least as well. But you've got to, you've got to, be, you've got to have the capability. And I'm afraid we, haven't, we, we aren't qu- quite good enough yet. Mm. And that's an interesting point, Stephen, that because we, t- we, we talk a great deal about the importance of having cyber strategies, particularly about the fear of having infrastructures undermined by hostile agents, etc. And yet uh, the, the impression from, from what I'm just, just listening to, Sebastian, is that perhaps we're not as well prepared as we should be. I hope that behind the scenes we are. I hope that at, uh, in classified, at the classified level um, there is more capability um, than, uh, than perhaps we know about. Um, how it's used, of course, is another issue. I mean, there were no... I don't recall any reports when when Zappa 2018, the Russian exercise, took place early this year of the Russians complaining about being jammed. And I'm sure they would have complained had it happened. Uh, So does that mean that we simply decided to hold off or do we not have the capability? I I think we're probably more capable than we may may realise. Okay, then. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, my guests, Stephen Diel and Sebastian Borger. Coming up next, we'll be finding out why Italy is looking to help shape the future of Libya. How do you unpack stories in the most engaging way while building a credible and comprehensive brand? Monocle Films visits three media companies in Paris, Munich and Tel Aviv to find out about the most innovative designs for paper and screen. It's good when you have lots of eyes or lots of thoughts on the same uh, topic and then at the end you can distill something new out of it. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in ideas from outside. This is uh, important for me. Designing the news, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Still with me are Sebastian Borga and Stephen Diel. Now, could there be lasting peace in Libya? A summit on the future of the country hosted by Italy in Palermo almost ended in embarrassment after fewer people than expected turned up. While Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin were among the notable absentees, yet it appears that the summit may have achieved something. Renegade General Khalifa Haftar has reportedly said he won't try to oust the UN-backed government of his rival Fayez al-Sarraj as the ground is set for new elections in the divide. Country. Now, these elections could actually take place next year, assuming that everything holds up. But Sebastian, how much of a breakthrough is this? Because my impression when you when you think about Libya is that it's it's one of those stories from a news perspective, which has largely 
sunk on the back burner. We we tend to think about it whenever we we hear about another boatload of of people escaping from Libya Libya and coming to Europe for sanctuary. Well, that that that's uh, maybe because we are in Britain, and so um, <laughs> the Brits are totally obsessed with Brexit. Of course, I think that the <laughs> some the, Brits, the Italians, um, and the French, indeed, um, and and also Federica Mogherini in in Brussels is is having a pretty um, BDI on 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 the situation in Libya. Um, the thing is, um, interestingly, these elections, of course, were promised for this autumn, weren't they? When when the when the parties last met, uh, which was in Paris, um, and we we are dealing here with uh, with a good old fashioned uh, you can't call them great powers anymore, sort of middling powers uh, conflict between uh, France and Italy about influence in what, of course, was a Italian colony. Um, so so um, it's it's a um, it's it's difficult not to be cynical uh, about about uh, the Italians trying to muscle in. But on the other hand, I mean, the UN G- Secretary General General was there, um, the the Russian Prime Minister Medvedev was there, um, and and uh, the parties uh, sort of once more said that they were all very friendly people and wanted to live in peace. Well, I believe it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you share that scepticism, Stephen? <laughs> yes, although I think the news that broke um, this afternoon, saying that in fact you know they'd got these two Libyan leaders not not only to to, uh, to to have some sort of agreement, but actually to shake hands and and smile at each other, and um, maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm being too uh, romantic, but. Um, uh, it, I think they they were disappointed because yeah the two big players you know it's now it's about big power playing and and the fact that Trump stayed away and Putin stayed away well actually they probably everyone everyone probably got on much better because of it exactly um, better for the for that, the that result I was actually going to that was one of the questions I was going to put to both of you in fact is it actually is it not necessarily a bad thing if if neither Trump or or Putin show up if they actually keep away well yeah I, I think you know and um, uh, as Sebastian said you know the UN Secretary General was there. Um, Federica Mogherini was there. Um, yeah, okay, the Russian Prime Minister. I think it, it shows how how insignificant uh, in Russian in power politics Dmitry Medvedev is that he was there, but people still thought it wasn't a success. But it's the fact that I think it's highly significant that, that it is Italy, it is the former colonial power that has actually succeeded in in bringing two Libyan sides mm. together, at least for now. I mean, I, I see a... a it's, it's, I know it's radio, but, but a very cynical look on um, Sebastian's <laughs> face. It, it but, is an extremely <laughs> cynical look, but let, let's try to be optimistic for one moment. Yes, I mean, oh, let's. Let, let's, let's. Tying it back to, to, the, to the story that we were discussing at the start of the programme, this whole idea about the European picture... If the Italians manage to pull a rabbit out of the hat on this one, and let's say for argument's sake that this divided country does somehow get itself together, this would be a huge diplomatic triumph for, for, for Europe. Absolute triumph, absolute triumph. But but again, it's so interesting that that I think the 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 Americans American foreign policy. Now let's not talk about Trump, but American foreign policy is clearly retreating from Europe and and from Europe's periphery, which North Africa obviously is. Uh, and so Europe has to step in now. 
you ideally you would want Europe to speak with one voice, and and so it, I I recommend that Federica Mogherini tries to speak with her compatriots in Rome and with the uh, French president, so that they actually uh, present a united front, and then it 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 would be much easier to to help the Libyans uh, get together, particularly if if I mean if the Egyptian president Sisi was there as well. So that's 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 a good good sign, no mm. doubt about it. But, and that's it's a very good point, Sebastian. Also, with um, American foreign, foreign policy on the on the way out of Europe, it seems at least for the next couple of years, we can assume you know, while Trump is still there, um, because also that creates something of a vacuum. And the Russians are very keen to get into that vacuum. And the fact that Medvedev was there, I know I'm rather dismissive, but the fact that they did send a senior person, even if they didn't send Putin. Um, we know that they are interested in extending their influence throughout the Middle East and across North Africa and indeed um, throughout the European continent too. So um, that, that if, that's somewhere else. We go back to our initial conversation again, that where Europe needs to show strength and needs to show unity. Mm, and to back off from playing the game of, of diplomatic one-upmanship that you referred to earlier, uh, Sebastian, because the French had taken the initiative and then it was the Italians. And then when you look at the wider picture, you've got the two rival governments being backed by different factions uh, you know I'm, I'm cynical because I, I don't think the power politics of Libya is resolved and and in fact neither uh, neither the Italians nor the French can actually do that but but it would it would obviously be much better if they, as I say, present a, a, a common front and and backed up by by other European uh, countries and 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 can offer help as well as uh, a little bit of stick. Uh, and then let's be hopeful. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, let's let's move on now to our final story because Stan Lee, who was the creative force behind the comic book characters Spider Man. X-Men, The Incredible Hulk and many others, has died at the age of 95. Working from a cluttered office on Madison Avenue, Manhattan, Lee conjured up a new breed of comic book superheroes who would come to define much of popular 21st century culture. I have to ask this gentleman, I mean, look, who's your favourite? I mean, I like Spider-Man. But I like the cartoon Spider-Man from the 1950s, 60s. <laughs> my, mine, mine, I have to say, was Batman, actually, which wasn't one I of thought his. It wasn't but, one of his. He, he no, can't be no. allowed. But I quite, OK, well, I suppose I, I like the Incredible Hulk. I remember being quite taken by the I have no idea. I monster. grew up with Asterix and Obelix. <laughs> Obelix is my hero. <laughs> he may have inspired Stan Lee in some way, shape or form. You never know. But look, gentlemen... We have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio. It brings us to the end of today's show. Stephen Diel and Sebastian Borger. Today's show was produced by Tom Hall. It was also researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Barbara Maimone. Our studio, our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next. Then at 1900 hours, it's On Design with Josh Fernert. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London. Time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>